We start with two exclusives for you tonight. We have the first CNN interview with former President Trump's former lawyer who quit the classified documents case over the summer. And it comes on a night when CNN has learned who could be testifying against Donald Trump in that very trial. The potential witness list, according to multiple sources and what they've told CNN, could include some of the people who were working at Mar-a-Lago. A plumber, a chauffeur, a maid, a woodworker, other Mar-a-Lago staffers, including some who still work there, plus contract workers, Secret Service agents, former intelligence officials, as well as people who were in the room with Trump when he was caught on that audio tape referencing a secret military document that was about plans, potential plans, to bomb Iran. These potential witnesses have already spoken to federal investigators, and some, of course, can provide firsthand accounts of what they saw at Mar-a-Lago, where we know hundreds of classified documents were found, including dozens that were marked as top secret. They were found in places like Trump's bathroom, his bedroom, a ballroom, and yes, a storage room. There's a woodworker who installed crown molding in Trump's bedroom in February 2022. According to three sources, that person noticed papers that may have been classified. There's also the maid who cleaned Trump's bedroom suite. One source telling CNN that the former president went, quote, ballistic when he learned that she had been asked to speak with investigators. There's also a chauffeur who drove around visitors, including foreigners and VIP guests at the club, and many, many others in this new reporting tonight. Joining me now on this new reporting and much more for his first CNN interview since he left the Trump legal team over the summer in this classified documents case, Jim Trusty. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Jim. It's good to have you back on the show. I mean, just when you hear this reporting and what CNN's learned about the potential witnesses that Jack Smith's team could call, do you have any concerns about what kind of testimony they could potentially provide? Well, I think my starting concern is the, the leaks. I mean, it's just astounding how when it comes to Mar-a-Lago, uh, and I point towards DOJ for a lot of this because it helps them more than it would ever help President Trump, that all of this stuff gets aired publicly. Meanwhile, up in Delaware, it's radio silence. But in terms of the witnesses, look, I, I will just say this. I, I got to meet a lot of really uh, nice folks, you know, salt of the earth, good people, hardworking people down in the Mar-a-Lago scene. They were uh, aggressively really intimidated by the Department of Justice and the FBI. We have a decent idea, or I had a decent idea of a lot of what they would have to say, not necessarily across the board, but I tell you, it's the kind of thing where, Caitlin, you could drive by Mar-a-Lago on your way to the beach and you'd get a subpoena. Uh, so we had people that were literally with almost no information being told to go to the FBI, threatened to go to Washington. How many people do you, would you say that you believe investigators spoke with uh, as this investigation's gone on uh, until, of course, you left the team over the summer? Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not going to join the leak chorus, but I, certainly it's obvious that it's at least dozens. And, and look, I mean, just the fact that in their zeal to find something, anything, to justify this case, they were dragging in Secret Service agents, at least that's the report you just had. I mean, that's generally, I know there's been exceptions in history when it was the kind of star investigation, but generally speaking, that's kind of a no-go. And, uh, and that's just the level of aggression that we saw across the board while I was on the case, I think continues today. Do you think the testimony from the Secret Service agents could be potentially the most damaging in this case? Well, I'm not going to wade into the substance of what people have to say. It really actually touches not just in terms of my duty of loyalty to a former client, but to uh, work product privilege, you know, in terms of any internal investigation we did. So, look, I think it'll be fascinating when the case is tried. I'll certainly be one of the people that, uh, you know, calls in sick on my regular job so I can watch a lot of it and, and see how it plays out. But uh, again, this is kind of unprecedented territory with 
not just what they're charging and the Presidential Records Act and all the issues that arise from criminalizing this stuff, but the level of aggressivity. Telling witnesses, for instance, this has been publicly reported, give me the password to your computer or I'm going to drag you up to D.C. in three days and you'll have to do it in front of the grand jury. I mean, this is heavy-handed stuff that's unlike anything I saw in my 17 years at the Department of Justice. Well, I understand you don't like what you say are leaks. I mean, this is just reporting that CNN has done on this. I mean, there are so many witnesses potentially in this. There's a lot of people to obviously talk to about what could have potentially happened here. But when you look at this, a lot of these people still work at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, Trump employee number four, Yusil Tavares, just recently resigned, we are told, and Trump was not happy when he found out that he was still working at the club. But he was someone, Jim, who had a Trump-paid attorney and then changed to a non-Trump-paid attorney, and he changed his testimony. Do you think that the former president is trying to potentially influence any of the witnesses by paying for their attorneys? No, everything you just said goes to the fact that there's self-serving leaks coming out of one side of the aisle. It's really kind of amazing. And no real, no real respect for the privacy of these individuals. Look, it's not uncommon in a widespread investigation of any sort, criminal or administrative, for there to be a group of attorneys that share information under a joint defense agreement, have some sense of what's going on with the investigation, know where there's things that can be litigated, even pre-indictment. And so, look, paying for attorneys means nothing. The reality, the backstory that's really horrific in terms of what this purported conflict was that revolves around that witness is that the Department of Justice cannot stand Stanley Woodward, one of the attorneys in this case, because Stanley blew the whistle on a DOJ official essentially extorting him over a pending judgeship to flip Walt Nada. I mean, that's been publicly reported. That is a, a dark moment in DOJ history that they want to gloss over and then go after all the attorneys saying there's something wrong with attorneys either representing multiple clients or sharing information. It's, yeah, it's I know an absurd you, distraction. In our last interview, you brought that same instance up. I said we, you know, we had not seen any evidence of that. We haven't really seen it brought up as an issue. I mean, Stan Woodward is still representing several of the clients. He's representing a lot of them to where they think it could actually be. Prosecutors have argued it would be a, a conflict of interest. But on Yusel Tavares, I mean, you talk about it's not unusual for attorneys to share information when they have multiple, you know, potential witnesses or co-defendants. That's true, but he changed his testimony in a damning way for the former president that led to another co-defendant being indicted because he went from a Trump-paid attorney to his own attorney. Well, I think you're looping together a whole bunch of things. It, it makes for a great story, but I'm not here to... But don't to you even... see... You can see how there are questions about Trump's influence when he pays for the attorneys given well, I, a witness changed his testimony. I'm aware there are people that push those questions. I think there's a bigger backdrop, a bigger context to what's going on when it comes to some of the lawyers being challenged by DOJ. And let me just also give a broader context about the idea of obstruction. You know, we, we certainly, as lawyers, would obviously look into questions of whether there's things that happened after the substantive offenses that could relate to obstruction or attempted obstruction. It's not something that any lawyer takes lightly, so I don't want it to sound like I kind of gloss over it. But to me, it's really clear that a political decision was made by a very politicized department, that the best thing they have going to try to distinguish President Trump's possession of documents from then Vice President Biden's is to suggest that somehow obstruction is the difference. And that's been a narrative on this network and others that somehow, well, you know why they're different? Because of all the obstruction. Now, we don't get any leaks out of Delaware, 
But we get plenty of leaks down here that relate to these different witnesses, like the one you're just talking about or Walt Nata, all to suggest that somehow there was obstruction. And, and I view it very but differently. But it's not suggesting. I mean, Trump fought in a, a subpoena to turn the documents over. You were there as all of that was going on. Uh, actually, no. But let me just say this. We want... We want executives, we want anyone who's in kind of the C-suite of life and business to be able to freely talk to their lawyers and figure out, hey, can we fight this subpoena? Is there something overbroad, overly burdensome about this subpoena? What happens if we respond? What happens if we ask for more time? I mean, those are things that we encourage as a society. It's exactly right. And, and executives across this country have those so conversations. So he did try to fight the subpoena. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is... We are in a position where we should all be encouraging the notion that anyone that runs a business has the opportunity to talk to their lawyers about whether or not there's some sort of privileges that apply, whether they can fight it, whether they shouldn't fight okay, it. Okay, but a subpoena that is guidance. a subpoena, Jim. But let me ask you this, because the judge seems to be indicating in Florida that she is going to delay this case. Do you think it's going to get delayed past the election? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't have any inside knowledge from, from her or her chambers or really anyone else, but... Uh, I think what's driving the delays right now is not some sort of a political concern. It's the SIPA process. It's this idea that when you have classified material, you have to go through a very serious scrubbing and review and litigation long before you can enter the courtroom for the trial itself. And that seems to be bogging down a little bit, per perhaps unclean hands from the government. I don't know for sure. But the bottom line is that takes time normally. And so the time frame, these kind of artificial time frames but do you believe for it's Jack get Smith, pushed? I think it's probably going to get pushed. I don't know whether it goes beyond the, the election or not. But, but generally speaking, SIPA cases, these classified uh, information type cases, don't go to trial quickly because of that review. No matter everything else, no matter how many witnesses, how complex, what other defenses and motions there are, that alone usually pushes them outside okay, of Jim, a year. Let me ask so. you, because obviously the last time our viewer saw you was when you were still on the Trump legal team. You no longer are. Can you just explain why you resigned from the Trump legal team the day after he was indicted in the documents case? Uh, sure can't. No, I mean, look, I, and I certainly didn't uh, you know, suggest to CNN that I was willing to talk about that. The bottom line is, you know, I have a we responsibility. Have no, I, I don't. I'm not faulting you for asking. It's fine. I'm just telling you, I'm not a kiss and tell guy. Uh, so I'm not going to get into anything. It was the right time for myself to leave, for John Rowley to leave. Tim Parlator left a little bit before that. Can you just and say, so, did, did you resign or were you fired? It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not here to, like, try to elevate myself or disparage my former client. The bottom line is there was a logical break point. I took, took that break point, and, uh, and I don't kiss and Okay, tell. well, let me ask you about something that happened uh, this week, because the civil fraud case has been happening here in New York. You saw Trump was on the stand. There were some very testy exchanges with the judge. And at one point, the judge asked... Chris Kyes, who is now was brought on to be on the documents case, but is now in the in the New York case as well, the current attorney, to get control of him. Do you think you were better at controlling him as a client? No, look, here's what I'd say about that. I mean, you know, the response that that was reported, and I haven't been up in the courtroom in New York. I've got other other clients to serve, but the response is reported that that Chris basically said, ask better questions. Uh, that, that actually is the right response at that situation. It's the attorney general that called him to the witness stand. And when you call any witness to the stand that has some expertise in what they're talking about, they tend to be speech makers. I used to deal with cross-examining all sorts of experts in criminal cases as a prosecutor. You know, everything from fingerprints to identification to God knows what. 
And, and the reality is you get in and you get out. If you have to call this witness, and in civil cases you can call the other party, you darn well better get in and out with very tight questions and get what you want and get out. And they apparently didn't do a very good job of that to the frustration of the judge. But the judge's well, ire should say, have been directed towards them. Well, I mean, he said that Trump wasn't answering questions with a yes or no answer. But I'm also, you know, I think part of it would be people say Trump is a challenging client to have. I mean, he's had a lot of attorneys who have come to work for him and then left the case. There's a bit of chaos with the New York team right now as well. When you when you look at this and you look at what he's been saying in the special counsel's investigation, you used to work at the Justice Department. You know Jack Smith, who is the special counsel. When Trump calls him deranged and a psychopath, do you think those are terms that you would use to describe Jack Smith? Look, what I would do is focus, again, as a lawyer, as somebody who's been a prosecutor altogether 27 years before I went private, I focus on the conduct. I mean, that's me. It's a different situation for a person running for president, being indicted in these unprecedented and creative, and I put quotes around that, types of indictments. But the bottom line is I've seen things from the federal prosecutors in this, in this case, including extorting a fellow lawyer, that are obstructionist, that are wrong, that are overaggressive. And that's, what I, and that's what I deranged? call out and that's I mean, what I continue to call out. Hey, look, Caitlin, that's that's a that's a fun game to play. I understand it's not a game. why you're asking I'm it. I'm genuinely curious what you think, given you've worked with Jack Smith and you used to represent Donald Trump. I don't think America is waiting with bated breath to hear whether Jim will call Jack deranged. It doesn't matter. It's not part of the of my interest as an attorney. It's not really part of the public's interest. It's just kind of fun, sensational stuff. The bottom line is any fun. client, any client would have a right to be frustrated with the behavior that he's been facing. On behalf of the department, Alvin Bragg, Letitia James, and uh, and the wonderful Georgia case as well. So, you know, I, I, look, I don't have to sign off or sign on on anything that the president says, but I can tell you that the grounds for frustration, the concerns about a two-tiered system are legitimate ones. Okay, but you're not express. Well, okay, I, I was going to let you go after that, but I got to ask you, you can't really call it a two-tiered system of justice. I mean, look at the number of Democrats who are being investigated right now. I think Senator Bob Menendez would, would argue that it's a two-tiered system of justice. Well, Hunter I, Biden, I mean, the list goes on. Hunter Biden, you're using Hunter Biden as an example of equal justice. I I'm have just a saying hard you can't call it a two-tiered system of justice because there are plenty of Democrats who are also being investigated by the Justice Department, yeah, including I, the president's, the sitting president's son. Well, Jim Trusty. We'll, we'll come back and talk about Hunter's case some night. That'll be fun. But uh, anyway, thanks for Jim having Trusty, me on, Trusty, thank you for your time. First interview back on CNN. Appreciate your time. Right, Ahead, no ceasefire, but Israel has now agreed to daily pauses in the fighting, allowing Palestinian civilians to flee northern Gaza. The question is, will it hold? Plus, there's been a huge shakeup on Capitol Hill. I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing a big question. What will Senator Joe Manchin be doing? That is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
After more than a month of nonstop war, a pause, or rather a series of four-hour pauses. The White House confirming today that Israel is going to notify, notify civilians in northern Gaza of four-hour breaks from bombardment in their neighborhood so that they can safely evacuate to the south. While these pauses are a respite, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has been adamant that there will be no ceasefire until all the hostages are released from Gaza. But discussions are underway, we are told, to get those hostages out. CIA Director Bill Burns meeting with the Israeli intelligence chief and also other officials from Qatar who have a direct line to Hamas. While some members of the Progressive Caucus on Capitol Hill have joined in calls for a ceasefire, my next guest here tonight, a high-profile progressive himself, has called for humanitarian pauses instead. The question for some is, does today's announcement go far enough? Congressman Ro Khanna of California is here with me. Uh, but, Sir, what do you say? Did the four-hour pauses go far enough in your view? Is that what you were thinking of? It's a good first step, but no, it, more needs to be done. I mean, you need to get two million gallons of water in there. We need to get fuel into the hospitals. Uh, and while Hamas is using Palestinian civilians as human shields, I have said that they should not be bombing uh, civilian sites, civilian dense sites, hospitals. Israel should not. Israel, Israel should not. I mean, I, I don't think they're intentionally targeting civilians. But are they doing enough to not hit civilians in your view? In my view, they should have more operational patience. I mean, look, they have the right to self-defense. It was a brutal attack on October 7th. Any country has the right to get Hamas perpetrators. But when you have a hospital, when you have a school, when you have a refugee camp with many children, even when Hamas is there, even when Hamas is there intentionally, I think you try to get Hamas out, you get them into the tunnels, you track them. Look, it took us 10 years to get Osama bin Laden, but the loss of life there uh, is heartbreaking. And so I would say do not... Uh, bomb civilian dense sites. Yeah, I mean, they struck an ambulance recently, Israel arguing that Hamas is using it to transport weapons and fighters. President Biden said today that he was frustrated that it's this is not happening soon enough, that he's been pushing President or Prime Minister Netanyahu for a three-day pause or more. He has a lot of influence on what the prime minister does. He's kind of bear-hugged him. He's been one of his biggest supporters since this war broke out. Do you think he could influence him to do more? He doesn't, doesn't. I mean, I think certain things, uh, they're just not listening. Uh, my sense is that he has asked for the humanitarian pause. He wants the pause to be longer. Uh, I think the United States government has had candid conversations about doing more to minimize civilian casualties. And the president is making progress. Uh, and I do think that uh, the White House has uh, really stepped up in talking about Palestinian lives uh, and making sure that they're protected. Your political director just resigned recently because you are not calling for a ceasefire. Uh, is there, would you ever call for a ceasefire? Do you ever see yourself doing that? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, at some point, the war has to end. But the reason I didn't call for a ceasefire is that when you have the brutal murder of 1,400 civilians and people have committed that terrorist attack, if you just say, okay, let's have a ceasefire, then you're uh, basically saying there is no consequence to doing that. So I think there has to be more operational patience, precision, surgical operations in getting the Hamas terrorists that uh, were accountable. And once we do that, I also think there needs to be a peace process with equality for Palestinian rights. What is your thinking on this, Ben? I mean, have you ever been close to calling for a ceasefire? Because this is really dividing your party, but especially progressives. It's dividing the, the country. I mean, look, there was a sit-in in my district office today. I've, I've never seen this kind of mobilization uh, since the Iraq war. I mean, this is, there are people out on the street and they're upset with what they're seeing on television. They're upset 
with what they saw with the uh, Israelis who were killed. They're upset with the hostages, and they're upset with the Palestinian children who are being killed. It's an emotional issue. For me, uh, I said, let's get the water, humanitarian aid. I'm uh, calling 20 members of Congress, and the UNWR uh, uh, commissioner is having a meeting with us on Monday, so we're going to hear directly on the ground what's happening. Uh, and I said, let's not have bombing of dense civilian sites. That's where I am uh, right now. But every member has a, a, a slightly different perspective. And I, I you're honestly, not close to calling for a ceasefire. Not a full ceasefire, because I do think that the, the, there's still more to be done to get the Hamas uh, terrorists. But there needs to be, in my way, different techniques to doing that. Congressman Rokana, thank you for being here on Source and being here on set as well. Thank you. Appreciate you. He has given his fellow Democrats a lot of heartburn over the years, most recently stalling President Biden's agenda, but at times advancing it as well. Now, Senator Joe Manchin is giving Republicans a chance to flip his blue seat in a deep red state, announcing he is not running for re-election. We're going to ask Maryland Governor Wes Moore what he thinks about that, also the future of his party. That's next. Democrats, fresh off their election victories this week, were hit with a surprise announcement today. Maybe not so surprising if everyone's been reading the tea leaves. This comes from one of their own, Senator Joe Manchin. I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I have made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. Of course, Manchin has been a pivotal senator on Capitol Hill in recent years, from infrastructure to green energy. He put up roadblocks to the agenda that President Biden was hoping to put in place when he took office. But before the left could even savor in those wins they saw this week from Virginia, Kentucky, another victory on abortion rights, now tonight they are questioning, what does this mean for the Senate majority? And is there potentially more trouble ahead for President Biden and his reelection campaign? I'm joined now by the Democratic governor of Maryland, Wes Moore. Governor, welcome to The Source. So glad to have you on. I want to ask you about your state. But but first, given this major news today, are you concerned that this could mean that Democrats lose the Senate and at the same time potentially complicate President Biden's reelection? No, I, I mean, I um, to be very honest, uh, even had Senator Manchin decide he's going to run for reelection, it still would have been a difficult, uh, a difficult seat to hold on to. So I don't think that his decision not to run is a terrible surprise. Uh, and I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, that it, that it really impacts a, a measure of math. But but one thing that I do know is I still feel very, uh, very, very confident that um, that it's going to take work. But but uh, but I feel very confident in the president's reelection prospects. You know, I, I think about what what happened in, in, in 2020, what happened in the in the in the off cycle of, of 2021. I think about what happened in our year in 22. And then we saw what happened on Tuesday. You know, one thing that has not happened uh, to Joe Biden since 2020 is he hasn't lost on any of these election cycles. And so we know we have a lot of work to get done. We know there's a lot of things that we are going to have to push forward. And I know how aggressive I'm going to be campaigning for the president uh, going forward next year. But I also know that I have a real de deal of confidence that the work that President Biden has done and the results that he has shown, uh, that the people are going to give him another four years. Yeah, and you are certainly someone who advocated for him to run for re-election. Uh, he has faced a series of polls this week, ones that he certainly doesn't like. He was talking about them tonight at a fundraiser from The New York Times and from CNN. He was asked about those numbers today. This is what he told reporters. Joe Biden, uh, a president of the United States, 
said he doesn't think he's losing in the battleground states. It's a little bit hard to hear over Marine One there for people who are wondering <laughs> what that noise was. But when you just mentioned the work that he needs to do, what does that need to look like over the next year to change those numbers? Well, I think we just have to clearly articulate to people what's happening and the role that the president is playing in it. You know, I, I think about in our own state, you know, since I've been the governor of Maryland, you know, I, I've announced the, the creation of over 31,000 new jobs in the state of Maryland. I've announced that we're now putting together a red line, the first time a generational investment when it comes to east-west transit uh, within the Baltimore region. We've announced that we're uh, putting over $267 million that's going towards broadband expansion and making sure that everyone in the state of Maryland by the end of my first term uh, should be wired with affordable and accessible broadband. I think about the roads and bridges that we've gotten done. Uh, the thing that, that I know is this, is that if it weren't for President Biden and the Biden-Harris administration, none of those things would be possible. That the, the, what people are going to see is the work that's happening, the infrastructure builds that are taking place, the fact that Maryland right now has the lowest unemployment rate in the entire country, and we still raised minimum wages uh, to $15 an hour and gave our state workers a Why bump. Why do you think we don't that see that reflected in the polls? Well, I think I think we all have to have to collectively make sure that we are aggressively, uh, aggressively and assertively showing that the work that's happening right now in people's communities that people are excited about, that that's a partnership with the White House. And I think as people continue to see that and see just how impactful President Biden has been, uh, he will we will make sure and the people will make sure that he gets another four years. And the other thing, you know, that we saw on, on Tuesday, and it was just what a powerful issue abortion is for your party still. I mean, it caused voters in Ohio, a deeply red state, to vote to guarantee the right to one. Do you still think that'll be a powerful issue for Democrats in 2024? Well, I, I think it's an, it's an important issue that we, that we continue to be full-throated about. You know, I, I look at in Maryland, uh, you know, just in, in my time as governor, we not only pass laws that, that strengthen privacy, that strengthen protections for both patients and providers, but next year on the ballot in the state of Maryland, uh, we have abortion rights are on the ballot where we're gonna make it part of our constitution. Uh, you know, Maryland needs to, Maryland will be a safe haven for abortion rights. And I think that what we're continuing to see is all these other states uh, and these, some of these other governors that continue to push back against it and somehow think that them as governors should have a say as to what should just be a conversation between a woman and her doctor, that they'll continue getting pushback from people. That's, that's not where people are. Yeah, it did not work for Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. The other bad news that he got this week was not. that the new FBI headquarters, there was a battle for it to either be in Virginia or Maryland. It is now going to be in Maryland, they have announced. But there are some questions tonight about this. I mean, we're hearing from the FBI director, Christopher Wray, who is questioning whether or not there was a conflict of interest in how Maryland was chosen. Do you, do you believe that this was a transparent process? This has been an over decade long process that GSA has conducted. It has been thorough. It has been transparent. The GSA has been very clear that there were five criteria that they were going to make this decision based off of. And they showed the data, they showed their receipts. And the five criteria was what's gonna be the most cost-effective thing for the taxpayer. Are there transportation assets that are already billed out? We need a site that is actually build ready right now. We need to make sure that equity and what does it mean to have a context and a lens of equity into the decision is made and proximity to Quantico, proximity to a training facility. Those were the five criteria. And here's what GSA proved, that of the five criteria, Maryland won on four of them. 
The only one that Marilyn Dutton did not win on was proximity to Quantico, which was impossible because Quantico is in Virginia. <laughs> That's the only category that they won on. And so this, I, I think that the GSA has been going through this process for over a decade. I was very clear this was going to be a core priority for our administration as we came on board. And I'm so thankful for the work that Marilyn did in unity with our congressional delegation uh, to be able to make sure that the FBI building rightfully should be in the state of Maryland. So you don't, just quickly, you don't have any concerns. You believe it, it yes, it will be built in Maryland ultimately. The new FBI building will be in the state of Maryland, yes. Maryland Governor Westmore, thank you for joining us for your first time on The Source. We'll hope to see you back soon. Absolutely, thank you. And with Senator Manchin hanging up his hat, Democrats need a strategy to hang on to their majority in the Senate. Big questions for that. Also a question about whether or not President Biden needs help fending off a potential third party run from the senator from West Virginia. We'll talk to a former Democratic senator, also from a very red state, maybe my home state. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Someone else may be getting in on the 2024 race for the White House. We don't know yet, but it's certainly put out there because to many in his party's alarm, Senator Manchin did confirm today that not only is he not running for re-election, he's going to continue exploring that idea that has been out there, a potential third party bid for the presidency, as he announced that he is no longer going to be a member of the Senate. He says he'll travel the country to see, quote, if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize to the middle. Remember, of course, he left the door open to running for president when he was on this show last. I haven't made any decision, nor will I make a decision, until the end of the year. And my reason for that, I've never seen a, a place in the world that basically the next election starts the day after the last election. I've got a lot of work to do for my state of West Virginia, which I love dearly. Speaking of states that we love dearly, former senator for Alabama, Democrat Doug Jones is here with me. Senator, uh, what was your reaction to Senator Manchin's news today? You know, uh, Caitlin, I was um, disappointed, uh, not surprised, but I was disappointed. I think Joe Manchin was the only Democrat who could really take that seat in West Virginia. And I've always believed he could take that seat. So, But I was not surprised. This is going to be a tough race. He always knew it was going to be a tough race. And I, he's always put the people of West Virginia first. And I think he's done an amazing job uh, for those folks. So we'll see where he goes from here. How much are Senate Democrats, Senator Schumer, scrambling tonight, though, because he was basically the only person who could hold that seat and have a Democrat hold that seat? You know, look, I, I think that Democrats have been uh, looking at this possibility for some time. I don't think it was a bombshell. I don't think that they're scrambling. Uh, that They have a map, and they're looking at that map, and they've got some incredible incumbents. Uh, that they want to hold. That's first and foremost, to hold those incumbents. But they're looking to expand the map. They're looking at Texas. They're looking at Florida. Those will be tough races to try to unseat uh, incumbent Republicans, but it's not impossible. We have seen things happen before. So I don't think anybody's scrambling. I think they're 
just going to double down on their efforts, especially to protect their incumbents that they've got, um, that are going to be in tough races. But the elections this week and the elections in 22, uh, I think, give everybody hope that the Senate will remain in control of the Democrats. So what did you make of the other part of Senator Manchin's statement? Not that he was not running, but that he was going to be out in the country, seeing if there is a force to mobilize to the middle, as he put it. Yeah, well, Joe, you know, Joe's been, Joe's been pretty coy about all of that for the last year or so. At the end of the day, I hope he doesn't even think uh, twice about trying to run as an independent uh, or on the no labels uh, ticket because they can't win. The numbers are just not there. You can get out and you can try to mobilize and you can get people talking in the middle. But the middle is going to be in the Democratic Party. It is certainly not going to be in the Republican Party. But look what's happened. Look at it at the elections just the other night with Andy Bashir uh, in Kentucky. Look what happened in Virginia. Those are middle of the road voters. That's where the Democratic Party is. Maybe a little center left for sure. And we've got certainly people on the far left in our party. But, you know, if he wants to really have an effect, he could help Democrats across this country bring the moderates back into the fold uh, and do some things. At the end of the day, um, Joe, Joe Manchin doesn't want to lose. And I think that there, at the end of the day, when you look at the numbers, there is just no way an independent or a third party candidate can win in this country, especially in, in the polarized nature that we've got right helps, now. And it would only, help Trump. I'm sorry. You think it would help Trump? Oh, yeah. That's what I was about to say. That was about to say the only thing that that uh, that no labels or the third parties could do uh, with a moderate kind of so-called unity ticket, which is really impossible. Think about how a, a so-called unity ticket might govern. Um, you know, the last time that happened was, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. We see how that worked out. Um, so th I, I think it will. There's no question it will help put Donald Trump in the White House, uh, back in the White House. And I don't think Joe Manchin, I don't think Larry Hogan, I don't think others really want that to happen. And when they start looking at these numbers, that's what they're going to see. And the more people get in the race, the more independents, the more third party candidates, the more likely that uh, Donald Trump will be uh, reelected. And that's, that's going to be bad for democracy. It's going to be bad for this country. Yeah. And it was a notable statement from the White House that we saw as well uh, from President Biden on Manchin's announcement, tying him to a lot of the achievements that the White House often touts. Former Senator Doug Jones, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Caitlin. Coming up, we're going to check on what is happening in Israel. You heard us speaking with the congressman earlier, but also there is desperation outright in Gaza. And now we have firsthand accounts from civilians who are fleeing that war zone. You literally can't find anything that's edible in any supermarket. And it's really hard, like really, really hard. Tonight, Israeli officials say that 80,000 Palestinians have fled into southern Gaza through an evacuation corridor today as Israel is intensifying its offensive against Hamas in the north of Gaza. One civilian telling CNN, quote, nothing is left. Southern Gaza, however, has not been promising to be much better. Tonight, we are getting firsthand accounts from Palestinian civilians, their messages received and shared by the humanitarian group Mercy Corps. One woman is describing it, saying, quote, at night, we try to guess which room is the safest. My mom insists on sleeping with us, even though it is very crowded, so that if we die at night, at least we will die together. We rarely sleep. Somehow, we quiet our minds long enough to doze off, the explosions wake us up. 
We count the minutes to see the light and know that we made it to see another day. Another Palestinian woman sent this voice memo. What you guys are seeing on social media and on TVs is actually 2% of the reality. So know that we're dying here. Um, if we're not dead physically, we're dead inside. Joining me now is Kate Phillips Barrasso, the Vice President in Global Policy and Advocacy for Mercy Corps. Kate, I'm so glad that you're here. I mean, just to hear that saying that we're only seeing 2% of this. I know you have team members on the ground in Gaza who are sending in these firsthand accounts. What are you hearing? Yeah, we do have 70 uh, staff inside Gaza and the situation that my colleagues are facing there is unfathomable. Um, as you heard in those uh, audio clips, they are facing everything from uh, fear of being hit by aerial bombardment to uh, extreme situations in trying to procure water uh, and food, which is uh, dwindling down to almost nothing, um, to facing medical situations. Uh, one of my colleagues has an epileptic brother and he only has eight days uh, of pills left and they're they're rationing those because they, they just don't know where this is all going to end. So what I can say is um, they have all been displaced, all 70 of them. Several of them have had um, immediate family members killed and some of them have been injured. Uh, so it's an extremely difficult situation to hear about uh, and, and we fear for the worst for, for our colleagues in Gaza. And I know you, you've even had trouble staying in touch with them as well. That's correct. What um, is really difficult in the situation of Gaza is everything there comes from the outside, including water, uh, food, and also uh, uh, connectivity, electricity, yeah. uh, and, and internet service. So um, as those things have been actively cut off uh, to civilians in Gaza, it's very difficult for them to communicate with the outside world. It's difficult to charge your phone. Uh, it's difficult to have connectivity. And yeah. so we try to check in on them every day, but we have recently started to lose track of some individuals, which is obviously really worrying. Well, and for the safety, I know, of these workers, you've given them aliases. And you've been, when they do have service, they are able to send in accounts of just what life is like. And one of these, I just, I want to, I want everyone to listen to it. I think it's really important. This is from Nazma, that's an alias, about how difficult it is to find food and water. You literally can't find anything that's edible in any supermarket. And it's really hard, like really, really hard. We don't have water. It's, it's been really horrible. For clean water, drinkable water, my cousin goes to wait on in other long queues to manage to find, to get clean water. And that line, like the line for water, literally this starts at 5 a.m. in the morning and it stays up to 3 a.m. in the morning. Just to hear someone describing waiting nearly 24 hours in line just to get clean drinking water. Yeah. 
it's in, it's incredibly um, it's incredibly difficult uh, to be put in a situation like that. And we actually recognize that when people are not able to get that clean water, they are starting to drink dirty water. None of the sanitation services are any longer running in Gaza. Um, all of the pumps that desalinize uh, the water that usually is um, consumed there are not running because the fuel has run out. And so we really fear, in addition to spending the vast majority of the day trying to to, to find these things to survive, that people will resort to um, you know desperate desperate measures. And as a result, disease will spread. Things like cholera, um, you know, in overcrowded conditions like we see, particularly in the south of Gaza right now, that we might see a lot of health problems developing in a place where there are absolutely no medical services currently. It's just difficult to hear that. And I'm grateful for your team for sending that to let people know because it's important for people to hear hear that. Kate Phillips Barrasso, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. And we'll be back in just a moment. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy unloading on fellow Republicans, Congressman Matt Gates and Congresswoman Nancy Mace, those who voted to oust him from his job. People have to earn the right to be here. And um, I just think from, I mean, he'll admit to you personally, is he doesn't have a conservative bent in his philosophy. If you've watched her, just her philosophy and the flip-flopping, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe she wins re-election. I don't think she'll probably have earned the right to get re-elected. In response to that, we heard from both lawmakers, Congressman Gates saying, quote, thoughts and prayers as he works through his grief. Congresswoman Nancy May said, we have moved on to a much better speaker who is honest and trustworthy. Of course, that new speaker, Speaker Mike Johnson, dealing with a lot of the issues that Kevin McCarthy faced as House Speaker. We'll see that on full display in the coming days. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.